Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to this week's Tech Radio with all the latest tech from around Ireland and across the world. Thank you for downloading from our website at techcentral.ie onto your smartphone using your favourite podcast app or indeed listening to us on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. This is our show for the weekending Friday the 27th November and a high-end computing special for you because last weekend Niall Kitson, our editor at techcentral.ie went to the third Visual Effects and Animation Summit, which was held at Google's head office in Dublin. There he met up with people who work on high-end computers every day, from filmmakers to app developers to people working in 4K and virtual reality itself. So, without further ado, let us take you to Google right now to hear from the people who are literally at the cutting edge of tech. I'm out at Google's head office on Barrow Street in uh, Dublin 4 for the Irish Visual Effects and Animation Summit. And I'm meeting here with one of the co-founders of the event, Laura Livingston. Um, now, Laura, just if there is an event called uh, the, the VFX and Animation Summit, that implies that the industry is at a certain size, that it's, it's not a few small businesses bandied together anymore. So can you tell us a little bit about the event and uh, how, it's, how it's grown, I suppose? Um, so the event, um, it does, it's, uh, it started off, it was primarily um, geared towards those interested in visual effects and animation, both students and professionals. Um, and we, the co-founder and I, um, Owen Kaneen, had uh, went to the same college here in Dublin and we met in San Francisco, actually, when I was with Atomic Fiction. Um, he was extremely interested in what Atomic Fiction were doing at the time. It was a small startup, and we were trying to be nimble, be smart, and use cloud um, rendering computing powers um, and we were doing a few things that we actually felt would be really interesting to companies in Ireland who were bursting at the seams to expand as work came in but as everyone in the industry will understand there are times of a lull and part of the question of a uh, survival as a visual effects or animation company is what to do in terms of um, when you do have downtime and we have a lull so we felt um, that we had um, an insight into a few things that we, we just felt that we wanted to come back and share our experiences um, with the professionals and students in Ireland and the idea of a conference summit type of event came about and it has been growing since then. And uh, it's a sellout event this year, actually. So uh, how many delegates do we have? Oh, my goodness. So we have about 400 here. We basically had to use the capacity of the venue. Um, we tried to squeeze in more, but fire capacity and security and whatnot, we couldn't. Um, and we actually um, have... We, we put a waitlist out there so we could register interest in, in case we had cancellations. And our waitlist was capped at 500 and there's 500 on it. So I'm quite sure there would have been more on the waitlist had they have been able to add their names. So. That's absolutely fantastic news for people looking to work in animation and visual effects, yeah. that there actually is an industry out there to engage with. Um, so uh, just to look at what's going on, going down through the bill of speakers, it seems that you've got people talking not just about you know traditional inverted commas, animation and visual effects topics you're also looking at different applications of the of the same skills but outside of filmmaking so can you tell us a little bit more about that 
Absolutely. A perfect example of that is um, 3v4 Medical, who were here yesterday. And um, the the speaker was actually Eastern European. And it's really funny because when it came to Q&A time, many of the um, the delegates on the floor are saying to our speakers, welcome to Ireland. And this guy's actually been living here for such a long time. And he actually had to let everyone know that we are an Irish company, um, 100% Irish company based here in Dublin and one of the biggest app makers for the medical industry. But what they're doing totally crosses lines into, you know, what we do in visual effects. And many of the questions in the Q&A were geared towards everyone's, I, you know, you could see the cogs turning and what they're seeing is inspiring them and pr- projects that they're working on. So um, that would be one example. And then, of course, you can see in the lineup today and with uh, Saul Rogers from Rewind yesterday, um, there's also a convergence with um, filmmaking in general. My background is physical production, for example, before I get into visual effects. So I'm hugely interested in all things VR. Um, and that's, you know, part of the joy of being able to curate this event is that Owen and I can, you know, he's working at ILM X Lab now and he's immersed in the world of VR as well. So we can um, basically, if it's if it's of interest to us and we're in the thick of it working on it right now, that we can, um, you know, make sure that we cover that as part of the remit of the event. Because if we're interested in it, surely everyone else is too. And um, so that's one of the reasons why we have, um, you know, someone from the mill here and rewind and, um Aidan John Stark from the Foundry coming over to talk about Pipeline because, of course, with uh, bringing in VR and everyone's kind of racing to see what they can do with it, but we also need to develop Pipeline and workflow and everything to go along with that. Yeah, virtual reality pretty much seems to be a headline topic everywhere, but it's kind of... uh Bringing it to an event like this, uh, it's often been said that virtual reality will only work if there's the content to go with it. From a filmmaking perspective, is there the appetite there to develop material for virtual reality that maybe there wasn't for, say, 3D a couple of years ago? Yeah, and I think even if there's an appetite there to consume the content, I think one of the biggest hurdles is um, the, the reception of that and the fact that, you know, it's fantastic that we can be here and talk about it, but we only, and we did have headsets thanks to Samsung who came along this weekend, but one of the biggest things is the consumption of it. And I think that's one of the biggest hurdles, actually. I think there's going to be amazing content. And I think everyone has, you know, what Oculus and what everyone are doing coming up with these stories and finding ways to tell their story. But I think it's the the consumption of it is uh, kind of the hurdle at the moment. And everyone's trying to find a way to make it more comfortable. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. I'm speaking now with uh, John Stark, who is head of research at the Foundry. And uh, I guess, John, to start from first principles, because our our audience aren't filmmakers, tell us a little bit about the Foundry and uh, what the company does. So the Foundry produces software tools for, well, a range of industries, for media production, design, and we focus very much on content creation and visualisation. So in the film industry, we produce a tool called Nuke, which is kind of at the heart of big budget visual effects content for, for Hollywood blockbuster movies. And actually across a range of productions from short form, um, commercials, episodic content, our tools are kind of at the heart of creating really nice, beautiful content. So the world of VR is kind of an exciting place that we see exploding. There's lots of um, new productions coming along and they want to apply the same tools but in this new world of 360 video. So uh, yeah I mean when virtual reality is pretty much the it's the next frontier and I think that's 
agreed upon widely. Uh, but one harkens back to sort of um, the, the days of 3D and one wonders, you know, is this going to be just the same hype, ma- hype machine and then things trail off? But from a production perspective, are you seeing a much greater level of challenge uh, technically with VR than maybe you were seeing with 3D in the past, where you're sort of resurrecting a, a familiar technology and rebuilding it from, from first principles? Yeah, it, seems, it does seem quite similar to us. So, so I'm actually part of the team that worked on a tool called Ocula for Stereo 3D. And that tool, that software tool from the foundry, started with a collaboration with Weta um, when they were shooting native Stereo 3D for Avatar. Um, that's two cameras on a rig shooting in one direction. Now we're talking about content that's being shot on multi-camera rigs shooting in many directions. And it's not just one major post-production facility or production facility shooting this content. There are many, many people trying to shoot with these rigs that are only just coming out the door. They're trying to produce beautiful content to deliver on headsets. And there are many, many headsets coming out as well. So there there are a lot of parallels with Stereo 3D. And so I'm an algorithms guy. I work on the, the, the kind of the technology that's under the hood to help artists with the visual effects work. And I think, well... Stereo 3D was hard with two cameras, and now we've got to do 16 cameras, and it might not just be um, uh, a bunch of GoPros shoehorned together. It might be 14 uh, Red Dragons connected together. There's, there's a whole range of di- different um, technical complexities to deal with. It's just that much of a scale up from, from stereo. I guess one of the problems then is dealing with a, with a standardised rig then, that you do need consistency across models of camera. Uh, is there a standard that's being worked on at the moment that you will say, OK, uh, this GoPro will work well with this Blackmagic or, you know, uh, etc.? Or are we specifically looking at, look, you can only use one make, of, one make of camera across the entire rig or even one model of camera across the entire rig? It's a really interesting question because there's not, we haven't seen any consistency really in shooting content for 360. So a lot of people are using GoPros mainly because it's just so accessible. You can go and buy a bunch of GoPros and you can um, create your own rig if you like. But there's some really exciting things happening in, 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 in professional level 360 cameras. So there's the Nokia Ozo coming out. There's the GoPro Odyssey, the Jaunt Neo. There's the Samsung Beyond. Um, Lytro just announced Emerge. It's, it's a really exciting space. And th- there is no... Um, uh, common decision on, on what should be the right bit of kit to to shoot with and uh, the foundry we we produce the software tools we're kind of um in the middle enabling artists to work with whatever they capture um so we're kind of agnostic to how you capture the content and we're building relationships with with nokia and jaunt and, and google and, and and these guys building these amazing rigs um, and, and we're also kind of agnostic to what you deliver to as well. So it's all for us. It's about the software tools that sit in the hands of artists and enabling them to produce the content. Because I mean, it's always said content is is absolutely king. As soon as you get good, high quality content, then that's going to drive the, the the uptake of VR as a new medium. And in terms of using uh, new tools to make sense of all this uh, material that we're getting in from new cameras, uh, what have you f- found to be the principal challenges? Maybe in, 
at an algorithmic level, but also in making this new technology usable and uh, user-friendly for professionals that maybe they're, they're used to using Final Cut or, or whatever. You know, uh, how are you finding that user experience at the professional level? So I, I have to say, I still think we're at the early days. This, this, this world of VR and 360 capture for live action has really kind of exploded over the last year. I don't think we're even at the stage of um, ironing out the user experience. We're at the stage of making sure the tool chain is just there and available to solve the problems. There are so many technical challenges in dealing with the content. Ingest, preparation, correction, getting good stitches. This is a problem called stitching where you have to pull all the images together to get them laid out in this 360 bubble that you watch back in. Um, just getting the tools that work consistently, that ease the pain in getting to that 360 content, we're still a step away from that. So we, we as software tool creators, we, we're trying to collaborate with our clients, working on productions to try out new workflows, try out new tools, understand what's easier to use, what's not easier to use. So this is, this is kind of an area we're, we're feeling our way with right now. There aren't any definitive answers, I have to say. Great. Thank you, John. That's right. Thank you. Nice to meet you. I'm speaking now with Aidan Gibbons, who is a director with Mill Plus. And uh, it's important that I get Aidan's perspective on virtual reality, visual effects and animation, because uh, he came up through the ranks, really. You were initially a visual effects artist of sorts, were you not? Yes, that's right. Um, my career started um, in the mill about 10 years ago. Um, I actually travelled over to England and got a degree in uh, digital animation when I was 18 years old. Um, I did uh, an internship at Wimmel Lane over here in Dublin and then another internship in the mill um, while, while I was studying. Um, I did a couple of films and the mill asked me back. and That was my kind of intro into the industry. And I started as a junior generalist effects, visual effects artist. So your career has grown up pretty much, uh, very much in tandem with uh, developments on the, the sort of the post-production end of things. So uh, when you started getting into actually making uh, your own films or your own commercials, uh, an interesting challenge that must occur from your perspective is that having worked in the post-production end, you must be thinking this would be a great opportunity to try out this technology. Absolutely, and I think it's, it's, it's only been in the last year or two we keep getting approached um, by our clients um, uh, to look at more interactive um, things and how their brand can exist in other areas. And one of those areas is virtual reality. That's what we've been looking at recently. Yeah, in particular, um, having worked with 3D and virtual reality, when it comes to coming up with a project, say I know you've worked with uh, car manufacturers like Lexus, Sanyong and, and Jaguar in the past, when a company comes to you with an idea or saying, you know, we've got this product, at which point do you go, do you know what, this would be a great laboratory for 3D or something in virtual reality would work really well with this product? I think very early on when we see a storyboard for something, um, we can see if, the, if there's a really good story there. We may suggest that actually this could work very well in VR. I think, to be honest, at this, at this stage, we tend to get clients um, coming to us with an idea for VR and it doesn't it doesn't tend to work both ways so we tend to get first of all a commercial and then maybe off the back of that they want to try something in VR um, one thing that we've we found out that is it's we try and guide our clients into creating VR content that is unique and is not necessarily tacked on to a commercial 
I think it's important to to say that um, VR, you should do a VR project for a reason, and it's not just because you can do it. And it's it's finding stories in the VR space for for them. I think that might have been a problem with 3D in the past when people were trying to sell 3D, particularly 3D in the home where people didn't didn't have 3D sets to begin with. So our films were coming out and being reverse engineered into 3D and I think it created a degree of scepticism. Um, do you think that isn't going to be an issue this time around with virtual reality? No, I think it's still going to happen. Um, and I think the reason is because everyone is still experimenting and still trying. And um, as I was mentioning in my talk earlier, it's we're in a very kind of um, this stage of gimmickry still with VR, but that's necessary for a medium to grow. And the same thing happened with 3D when people first got their hands on 3D, they were doing all, lots of crazy stuff and doing 3D where it wasn't needed. But I think without that experimentation, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to progress. So it's only a good thing, but it will, the content will get better in the future. I think one of the interesting things about VR is that, uh, as opposed to 3D in the cinema, which we're kind of used to now, is that uh, 3D in the cinema works in the cinema context. VR is almost going to the opposite, where it will have to work in the home context before it can be translated anywhere else, simply through the cost of the, the headsets. Do you think that that'll be the case? Yes, I think I think the in the next couple of years, we're going to be having headsets at home. And I think it's... Um, when, when I say when I say headsets at home, I mean in, in terms of gaming and both in terms of viewing content. So I'm talking YouTube content and Facebook content. Um, I'm not sure where VR has a space in a public domain. So in terms of cinema, I'm not sure people will get together and put on a headset um, together. That seems a bit weird to me. But what I do think is that people will connect together from the comfort of their home and and you know come together in the virtual world. Great, thank you. This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. I'm speaking now with Saul Rogers, uh, who is founder of Rewind. And uh, I guess we've been talking with people so far about the applications of virtual reality in the creative space, be it in animation, be it in features, be it primarily as a a visual effects tool. However, we're also starting to see VR applied to, um, I guess, the real world, you might say, but but we're also seeing it used as an addendum to other kinds of technology, uh, particularly augmented reality. So, Saul, tell us a little bit about bringing VR into the real world. Hi, well, thank you very much for letting me join you on this podcast today. So um, virtual reality, in my, when I talk about the real world, is actually studying create content that is outside of R&D projects. So things which are for consumers at the end result. So on um, one end, we created um, a VR simulator for Red Bull in a true VR sense. We created all of their tracks perfectly from scan data and then took the telemetry data from the real plane to drive the virtual experience. When you put the headset on, you're transported to the cockpit and you're flying with him and, you know, at that moment, seeing exactly what he did. But the only way to really feel what it's like to be in the plane is to give, get VR involved. So stereoscopic, positional tracking and all of the good stuff. But that in itself as an experience is something, it's not a game, it's not a film, it's not linear, it's, you know, an experience. But if I gave you a joystick and let you fly, then that falls back more into a virtual reality game sense. And if I then rendered it back as 360 video, then it more becomes more linear and it ends up more in the kind of film sense. Um, whereas also we're working with Bjork and helped her bring together her 360 music video. Um, that's a linear piece, but we use really amazing binaural audio. So it sounds like she's with you in the space and moving around you as if you're in the middle of the, or- the audience, um, sorry, in the orchestra. 
But that piece of content we're wrapping as an app. So I know it's a piece of video, but we're wrapping it as an app. And it'll be sold on iOS, Android, and every other platform as a piece of content. Um, people can't, don't really buy uh, singles these days, really. Everyone's streaming this thing. Um, no, one, no one buys music videos. But wrap a 360 music video in a VR wrapper and put it out there, it has real value and worth again because it's so powerful as a medium compared to what we know from before. So it might be a case of, you know, did you go see Bjork and Lansdowne Road or the Aviva? And people would be like, well, no, there's the app. Absolutely. You can go and have her sing to you, have a personal um, personal concert, basically, with her on a beach. In this case, she's singing to you, for you. And at the addition of a virtual reality headset, gives you that feeling of being there. We did a project recently for the BBC, which was Strictly Come Dancing, which is basically Dancing with the Stars. It's celebrities dancing. And um, although not my favourite show, shooting it in 360 video and working with the choreographers, you get to sit, in this case, on, on a piano right in the middle of the dance floor, and they're dancing all the way around you. And it's a beautiful thing to see from that point of view. We've also captured it from the point of view of the best seat in the house, right on the edge of the dance floor. And I showed this to someone the other day, and they took their heads off and they were crying. And I was like... Why are you crying? This is just, you know, dancing with the stars. And they said, well, I love dancing. I love the show so much, but I never thought I'd get to sit in the audience. And I said, well, you haven't sat in the audience. You've seen a virtual reality headset 360 video. She went, yeah, but it felt like I was there. And that's the emotional connection that VR really has. It tricks the senses into believing that you are there with it. And you're creating not memories of watching a movie. You're creating memories of being there in the movie. I was playing... Minecraft last week, you know, VR Minecraft. I'm in there, I'm building towers and this sort of thing. And I remember being underground digging a tunnel. I don't remember playing Minecraft, digging, you know, making it. I, my brain believes I was there. One of the technologies that's growing up side by side with virtual reality is augmented reality. Uh, and we're seeing that being used really impressively through uh, Microsoft's HoloLens. Uh, are you doing any work with that device? So the Microsoft HoloLens is a, an amazing device. And yeah, we're looking at using it um, coming Q1 next year. Um, and also, if you haven't had a delve around, there's a thing called Magic Leap, which no one knows of, but there's a lot of internet chatter about. Again, we believe it's a headset. HoloLens and Microsoft have stopped calling it AR. They've started calling it MR, uh, merged realities or mixed realities, trying to get away from tablets that you waft around for AR and bring it into a different space. But that in itself, I think, is, more of a f- is going to have more of a fundamental impact on my experience day-to-day or even human experience. VR is so immersive and visceral. It's something you go for your extreme premium, I'm going to go and do something else. Do you think we're at the stage where both technologies will become distinct as uh, augmented reality will become sort of the informational overlayer of what you're already doing, while virtual reality will be a complete recreation of what you're doing? I think absolutely. I think it's, I will wear my HoloLens for half of my day, I'll have my, my screen, I'll have my virtual screen, I'll replace the windows with the better weather and I'll see you across the table from me. And so we'll work in the same space. And all the worries that we had about people having Google Glass having an, um, an advantage over people that don't wear it because of the connection with the internet and everything else, I think HoloLens will actually give us some of those sort of things where it really is a competitive advantage to wear that headset. Great. Thank you, Sol. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you.
I'm speaking now with Robert Cairndoff, who is the CEO of 3D4 Medical, um, one of the, I guess, most well-known app developers in the States, certainly in the uh, medtech field, but for some reason not so well-known over here. But we'll we'll lift the lid on that now. So uh, the reason Robert here is here because... Uh, we're all getting very used to a very elaborate visual effects in the movies, which is why we're at the uh, Irish VFX and Animation Summit. Uh, however, that same technology has a million and one applications in other fields, in particular in medicine. And um, I guess, Robert, the appeal of improved graphic technology from a, a medical perspective is to help uh, professionals work more effectively. And it's a history that really goes back as far as the X-ray and beyond. So uh, where exactly are we seeing the new developments in how doctors are approaching specific procedures, maybe, for example, a knee replacement? Well, that's a good question, because when you talk about imagery being used in medicine before, that's exactly what happened. And that, now that we have the ability to change that imagery into three dimensions, that's going to help enormously uh, uh, with, uh, in the medical field. For example, in a knee, knee replacement, as you mentioned, if you're able to take their MRI scans and turn them into a 3D representation of that knee for the patient to understand or for the doctor to understand what needs to happen and even practice that, uh, uh, that operation, it's enormously useful. Currently, that technology exists and is being used. Normally, what happens is they will send away uh, the MRI scan data and a 3D representation either sent back printed or a 3D virtual representation of that knee is sent back. What we at 3D for Medical are hoping to do is take that MRI data, using our models, morph them to match that data exactly in real time. So they will suddenly see, the patient will see their knee on the screen as their doctor is explaining what needs to happen. The doctor can take that knee and practice in atheroscopic surgery on a screen exactly what he's going to do in a virtual world. And that's what we're, uh, let's say, phase three of our platform is going to be doing. One of the things that I guess people would be very familiar with was the presentation of the iPad Pro. So when we're talking about these improved 3D technologies, one always wonders how, how are we actually going to get these into devices? So if you could explain a little bit about getting 3D4 medical um, apps onto mobile devices, specifically iOS, where you have a long history, and the challenges presented by maybe getting something onto the iPad Pro, which is a, a device that we haven't seen yet. Uh, do you mean how difficult is it for other app developers to get something on the iPad Pro or for us? Uh, for you in particular. Um, well, for us, there, I mean, there's, there's a certain challenge, but not a huge one. The, the main thing is the opportunity. I mean, more power means uh, more capabilities. Uh, uh, the iPad Pro has offered us the ability to create more intense graphics. It's allowed us to edit uh, 3D in real time, which we weren't able to do on previous devices, or not to the same extent anyway. Uh, it's we are now we've added a cloud uh, uh, capability to it as well, so that we can bring our own data in. So, for example, uh, in the future, when we're bringing data in from an MRI, we'll bring it straight in. It won't be directly into that app on that device. It won't need to be downloaded. Excellent. Thank you very much, Robert. Lastly today, I'm speaking with Anil Cockrum, who is a professor at TCD, uh, an um, entrepreneur, uh, former founder of uh, Green Park Pictures, which was acquired by Google in 2011, and uh, also an Oscar winner for his work on, uh, I guess, making uh, films easier to watch without you actually noticing that anything has been done to them. So, um, 
and his current work is with the Transcoding Group at Google and therefore YouTube. So, Anil, to talk a little bit about uh, your work to date, people often talk about the unseen work that goes on. Uh, I guess that's kind of what you've made a career out of. That's quite right, yeah. Um, a lot of what we do um, is not, it's not visual effects, is not obvious in the production, even in YouTube, but it's all about improving picture quality. So um, the idea is to allow you to see the best possible picture that you could possibly see over the internet and uh, certainly go beyond what television is capable of. So uh, some of the work that you've done in the past has been looking at sort of um, TV archives where there would be a lot of footage taken on celluloid or video, which of course has a a certain lifespan to it, Um, and not just sort of scanning and sort of putting these things to to one side for posterity, but also for cleaning up the images as well. So can you tell me a little bit about um, that process? And, and I don't know, were there any sort of issues with gaining access to material initially? Um, so, so restoration is something I spent a lot of my time doing as an academic and researcher before joining Google. And um, archives around the world are always concerned about the deterioration of their physical media and also the problem of trying to keep up with distribution standards. So you have to make sure that you could read the data off of the media that you have, given that those readers uh, might no longer exist, right? Um, So uh, part of what we were doing is simply trying to offer archive houses technology for uh, restoring pictures once they have been lifted off the original physical media, Um, so, for instance, things like um, removing dust and blotches on movies, uh, removing line scratches, uh, noise reduction, and so on. And those ideas are examples of uh, tools which are also needed for video internet distribution, as it turns out. And, in fact, um, two technologies uh, that you would see in film restoration, notably noise reduction or trying to manage the grain in the film um, and frame rate conversion, trying to stabilize pictures or um, interpolate pictures in between existing ones, uh, things that have made their way into YouTube over time. So when you're talking about sort of interpolating uh, the gaps between images, uh, that would be a case of, uh, to use an example, you see an awful lot of these very elaborate 3D shots that are taken with 40 cameras in a row, that sort of thing. But of course, not every camera has a, a complete field of vision. There are gaps between those shots. This is kind of this technology that you've worked on in the past. Yeah. In fact, uh, we worked on this in conjunction with the Foundry in London. Um, and the, one of the two, two of the Matrix episodes are based on this technology that I helped them work on. Um, the idea is to estimate motion between shots of frames and then reconstruct pictures that um, were not there or were difficult to take. Um, in YouTube, about two years ago, we launched an application in the YouTube editor that allows slow motion in the editor, and that's based on uh, almost the same technology. It's a big challenge in YouTube because the uploaded media is such a wide variety of content, uh, different resolutions, different, even different quality itself. And we still have to make a system which was robust enough to deal with all of these different challenges. Um, It's quite different from post-production where the data 
coming in the door is generally of a much better quality. So um, with YouTube, that was definitely a big challenge, but I'm glad to say that it worked out. And now you could go to the YouTube editor and just click on a button and slow things down by up to a factor of eight times. That's uh, incredibly impressive, given that when you had to initially make um, slow motion back in back in the film days, you, you had to run the film in the camera faster just to get those extra few frames. Uh, so to bring that to a, a digital medium where you, you don't have the physical celluloid to work with, uh, how big a challenge was that at the time? So it's, it's interesting that you talk about um, high frame rate capture. Um, so... Definitely trying to take those ideas from post-production to YouTube. It was tricky, uh, but I mean, fundamentally, it's, it's all about uh, software and management of your user interface as well as computing infrastructure. And YouTube, uh, YouTube and Google is pretty good at computing infrastructure. Um, the tricky thing was handling the different variety of input quality. Um, it's interesting that you point out that people used to do slow motion by overclocking the film. So you'd run the film at faster than 24 and then play it back at 24 and you get slow motion. And they still do that today. Um, and in fact, YouTube now allows you to upload high frame rate video. And that's something else we were working on just to unlock that capability in YouTube. So up till about November last year, you could only, YouTube would only distribute 30 frames per second at maximum. But after November, we unlocked the ability to distribute 60 frames per second maximum. So you could upload 60 frames per second, play it back at 60, or um, interpolate frames and slow it down equivalent to 120 FPS played back at 60 or something like that. And when we're playing around with frame rate and resolution in um, uh, consumer grade visuals, really, at the moment, sorry, the, the next step really is 4K, uh, which presents a, a whole new raft of problems, probably as many as when people made the leap from SD to HD. Uh, what kind of issues do you see YouTube having to deal with in 4K? I gather it's now um, accepting 4K uploads. Is that right? Yeah. So YouTube has been accepting 4K and distributing 4K since 2012 or 2013 even. Um, and the, from a YouTube perspective, the innards of the platform more or less remain the same. I mean, we have to now cope with bigger data rates, larger frame sizes, but it's a matter of, again, scaling up our computing infrastructure, which is Google and YouTube is pretty good at. Um, from a consumer point of view, the available bandwidth is, is everything. Right? So we target uh, upwards, our maximum bit rate for 4K is of the order of uh, 16 megabits per second, which is at the very high end of what most people could uh, consume right now. So it is difficult for everybody to um, see 4K because you need that bit rate. But we are also pushing ahead with new compression technology to improve this even further. And the 4K experience on YouTube, um, you could actually tell whether something is delivered actually in 4K or not because we've started to apply tags to the video and you would see a 4K tag appearing if we believe it was uploaded at 4K and, and you could consume it at 4K. 
Um, lastly, I guess one of the interesting things about YouTube is the ability to scale the image to, to so many different options from SD down to a, or rather from HD down to a very bare SD. Uh, I guess 4K presents a, a similar degree of problems, does it, in terms of downgrading? So, yeah, um, we, we continue with that um, facility all the time at YouTube. So you upload at some resolution, we provide you with that resolution on, on output, as well as all the other resolutions right down to 144p. Again, to try and hit different bit rates for different consumers around the world. Um, with 4K, it just gives us a broader spread of these uh, bit rates and resolutions. So you can consume your 4K content at the original 4K or at 2K HD um, standard definition and below that if your phone cannot, uh, cannot handle the hybrid rates. Um, that, the, the challenge of providing good downsample content is one that we are very serious about and the better the content that is uploaded to YouTube, actually the better the downsampling process is. So you upload 4K, we could actually make better looking HD from that 4K. All right. Okay. So in the future, if there's a rule of thumb, it's uh, basically update and the highest quality you can find and you guys can look after the rest. That's it. Exactly. Whatever you have, give us the best you have and we'll distribute the best quality for you. Thank you, Neil. Thanks a lot. And that was Niall Kitson, our editor at techcentral.ie, talking to loads of people at the third Visual Effects and Animation Summit at Google's head office in Dublin last weekend. That is our show for this week. Remember, next week is our very own toy show. Looking at all the tech toys that you should be asking for for this Christmas. It's my favourite show of the year. Remember, you can keep in touch with Irish Tech News with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie as well as our weekly tech radio show online and every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty, and from Nile Tech Central HQ, take care. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.